I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Sony cancel their North Korea comedy after being hacked and then those terror threats. We'll ask our resident PR guru what they can do to get back on the front foot. We'll react to the end of Serial, the podcast that broke download records. Channel 4 News gets trigger happy and nearly scuppers a six-week trial in the process. Plus, there's changes at the top of Ofcom, The Guardian and Classic FM. And it's the last ever chance to win a cream egg in our media quiz. This is the Media Podcast, sponsored by Audioboom. Well, the Christmas exodus has begun, so down the line this week we have in Birmingham Powers Court PR consultant James Robinson. Hi, James. Good afternoon. Hello. Are the Christmas parties over for you? Yeah, we had our office party yesterday, so that is the last of the Christmas parties for me. I'm glad to say it's not quite as much fun when you're middle-aged. I know, um, I know what you mean. It's actually sometimes you, you, in your heart, you've got, I've got to go to one straight after recording this and you think when I'm there, I'm going to enjoy it. But the prospect of doing yeah. more small talk over uh, Cheap yeah. Echo. I find I can't hear what anyone says in a loud room in, yeah. as well, which is never good. Trying to have a conversation with Ian Dale over a bowl of peanuts in a nightclub the other day was uh, <laughs> hilarious. Highlights of the year, I would have thought. But anyway. <laughs> and from her South London pad, it is media writer Maggie Brown. Hi, Maggie. Hello. How has your media calendar been shaping up this week? Uh, actually, it's been quite quiet. I've been, I've been busy writing, but I have been out today. I've been to a very, very good conference on the BBC at uh, City University where The Great and the Good kicked off by John Burt and then uh, James Harding and uh, other assorted grandees. They have this idea of doing kind of speed conferences uh, at City and uh, they're, they're holding three on the BBC. The first one last July was where... Tony Hall suddenly announced that he was going to think of outsourcing a BBC production, turning it into a sort of standalone unit. Mm. Uh, and this one had quite a, an interesting uh, statement from James about uh, current affairs and the direction of travel, etc. It, it, was, it was good. See, James, whilst we've been making small talk over nuts, this is the kind of serious media news that Maggie's been tackling. <laughs> OK, well, let's look back over some of the uh, the big news stories from the past fortnight. And let's start with the one that's actually unfolding pretty much as we're recording this show today, Sony. Uh, over the past few weeks, obviously, there was first the news that the entertainment division discovered their computers had been hacked. Then they found out it was a group called Guardians of Peace and that that group might be based in North Korea. 
and that all this might have something to do with the imminent release of the interview, their comedy film poking fun at Kim Jong-un. And then, of course, this week, the imminent release became a not-release at all as Sony pulled the film, citing threats made by Guardians of Peace to cinema goers, uh, and also because pretty much every cinema chain in the US opted not to show the film. So now, of course, there's a backlash against Sony, isn't there? Rob Lowe tweeting today, the hackers have won an utter and complete victory for them. Jimmy Kimmel calling the cinema chain's refusal to screen the movie an un-American act of cowardice that validates terrorist actions and sets a terrifying precedent. Uh, James, he's, he's right, isn't he? Well, he is right in the sense that the cinema chains have, have given in to threats. I mean, I think there's some debate over whether you could actually call these people terrorists, but I, I guess the implication from their threats was that some sort of violent act might occur. I mean, I think it's interesting, particularly because I think the US authorities have said, as far as they can see, there is no credible threat at all in these words from the Guardians of Peace. So it does seem quite a remarkable capitulation, really, in the face of idle threats from someone, a group we know very little about. And and I guess the, the, the backlash is, is something they must have been prepared for. Of course, you can imagine another scenario where, in which they'd gone ahead with showing the film, and as unlikely as it seems, there was some attack. Then you can imagine how badly the cinema chains would have looked. So... But it is it does raise a whole host of issues. I mean, the other issue it raises is whether the media was right to report the hacked emails. You know, we've had these emails about Angelina Jolie and other studio stars and executives. I mean, there's a lot of actors, including some of the stars of the interview itself, who've criticised the media for reporting the hacks in the first place. Mm. Yeah, well, Maggie, Sony got pretty shirty, didn't they, with media outlets for reporting on the hacked emails. But actually, as James suggests, how could, how could they not do that? I thought that was absolutely pathetic. Talk about shooting the messenger. Of course the media is going to report that sort of story. I mean, it's got all the ingredients, hasn't it? Showbiz, just public interest, and also just human interest. So, I mean, if Sony expects people endlessly to promote their red carpet launches and uh, review their their films, then uh, they have to take uh, the other side of it too. I think Aaron Sorkin who was one of the victims of the hack, actually said this, yeah, these stories are not in the public interest. They actually said that. Well, clearly, <laughs> could, they could hardly be more in the public interest. Yes, some of it's, it's, it's gossip and slightly salacious stuff. But the, but the whole, you know, it, the idea, that, you know, to talk about shooting the messenger, to criticise the media for reporting on a story about, a, a, you know, the world's most oppressive regime, hacking a major Japanese-owned American studio and disseminating emails about major, you know, some of the most famous people in the world. I mean, it's sort of beggar's belief. The whole thing has been mishandled by almost everyone, hasn't it? And it is quite remarkable that it started as almost a joke and it, it's become a, a big film from a big studio. It's been pulled as well, it seems absolutely crazy. In the end, this is going to be, I guess, a case of all PR is good PR, not so much for the executives involved, but certainly for the sales of the DVD and the Blu-ray. How should Sony have handled things differently, James, as a PR man, if you were instructing them? What should they have done? Uh, bearing in mind, this was taken as, I mean, I know you're, you're sort of ex- exercising some caution about the word, but it was taken as a terrorist threat. Well, I think the answer is quite simple, which is that they should have said, we operate in a free and democratic society and we do not succumb to terrorist threats or threats of any nature and the film will be released. They could have said that we are working with our cinema chain partners or our, the cinemas that were due to show the film across 
America and the rest of the world to come up with, you know, new security arrangements or ways of making sure this film was distributed. And if they couldn't do that, they weren't prepared to do that, they could have said, we will find a way to make this film available by whatever means necessary. If that if that means partnering with Netflix or if that means, you know, partnering with cable companies across the world, one principle remains absolutely uh, sacrosanct, and that is we will not be bullied into... Mm canning a film that is a comedy film about or it doesn't matter the the, the subject matter is almost irrelevant that that's what they should that's what absolutely what they should have said and i think they'll they're probably i wouldn't be surprised if they're, they're regretting not saying that now and maggie I, I mean i was just thinking about if this had been a british company involved rather than an american one um you know we've got had the bbc having some controversy this week for uh, playing out the assassination of margaret thatcher mm-hmm. on book at bedtime and channel four a few years ago had the assassination of george bush didn't they so these kind of revenge mm-hmm. fantasies about killing politicians not new even though this one is clearly a knockabout comedy uh, i think if this was the bbc or channel four they'd go ahead and screen it absolutely and i was also thinking of the trial of tony blair do you remember that yeah mm-hmm. Program. No, I, I don't think we would have been as wet as, as has happened in America, where it seems to me hysteria has got completely out of hand. But then that's kind of Hollywood for you, I suppose. And also, when you think of all the, the a lot of the James Bond type films seem to feature mad, I always thought, North Korean type style uh, dictators. So um, I, <laughs> I, I just think the whole thing is stupid. Yeah, you do, you do wonder if hacking had been an option available to uh, North Korea when Team America World Police came out. What would have happened as a result of that? Uh, but let's move on to uh, the world of podcasts now, because uh, Serial, the podcast made by the team behind the public radio show This American Life, came to an end this week after 12 episodes, as if you didn't know. Uh, but for the uninitiated, Serial featured the reporter Sarah Koenig attempting to unravel what happened on one day in 1999 which resulted in a girl's death and her ex-boyfriend being jailed it's broken records and introduced a wave of new people to podcasting and i think more importantly than that it's become the conversation that everyone is having you know you lose count to the amount of times people say because of serial this or because of serial that and that's the change isn't it maggie people are really talking about this Yes, they are. I I think that there's quite clearly, well, I mean, look, we're doing a podcast, aren't we? I think there's a lot of interest in dedicated podcasts which are serving a particular interest group. And and obviously, Serial is, is a form of, you might say, detective story, a real life detective story. I mean, James, it seemed to me this was kind of like the water cooler moment, you know, which is something that people talk about in telly, isn't it? But the water cooler moment coming to podcasts, people were saying to each other, have you heard? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, it's a huge moment for podcasts. It's a great moment for journalism in a way, but it also shows that we continue to be absolutely obsessed with crime and murder, basically. If you look at the the missing finish this week, didn't it, on the BBC show and another BBC show, The Fall, has its climax this week. Um, and then, you know, the broad church or the, the bridge, the killing. That, I mean, it's it, our obsession with storytelling, which I think is a something that is, we almost seem to have a, you know, as a human being, as we have a real need to hear and hear stories, no matter what, in what medium. And, and crime is the vehicle for that at the moment. It almost become a defining characteristic of our of our age, really. And and also the other thing that it shows, of course, is that from a commercial point of view, podcasting is still pushing the boundaries and trying to feel a way towards making a profit and and find a business model that works. Because I think that you know it's free, part funded by advertising. And and I, and I think I'm right in saying the second series, which which will happen, is is part funded by the listeners after um 
a crowdfunding campaign. So I mean, it just shows you that that you know, there's no one way really of doing media in, at the moment. There's there's different models, and and we're really it's sort of like the wild west, isn't it, in commercial terms? And but creative. you know, very, it's very interesting because this week the the Ofcom's Public Service Broadcasting Review, uh, which was looking at television and radio, uh, was pointing out that there's been a, a sharp decline in listening to radio, especially amongst younger people, mm. because. They're, they're choosing to, to stream music and access music in particular in their own ways. But interestingly, this kind of podcast, which is not so very far from being actually read to, I mean, it's kind mm. of um, easy to use and digest. This could well be the, the sort of the other side, the, the, the positive side of this, that there yeah. is an appetite for, if you like, speech radio or speech stories, which are not quite the same as radio but are very gripping and topical so well, it's, yeah it's all good news well it's bespoke content isn't it because you can bespoke get your music content. from spotify you know this is this is it's so interesting because it's like it's almost like the, what dickens did you know 100 years ago or more in the victorian era when he was producing some of his greatest books were written as serials weren't they ironically they were produced in um, london magazines so everyone had to wait another week for the next episode if you like and that that's what this is replicating in a strange way yeah i mean that's i think one of the built-in secrets of of serial is that you knew it was going to come to an end and reach some sort of conclusion however unhappy some of the hardcore fans are with the conclusion that it reached you know that's I would argue something that's come about actually not through podcasting getting popularity, but but through Netflix. You know, it's, it's this idea of the box set, isn't it? You watch your way through a season of a thing. I wonder how many people actually listening to Serial and discovering podcasts really even think of them as podcasts at all. They're just shows on the internet. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's, it's all about the changing way we're consuming TV, radio, films, podcasts, whatever you want to call them, you know, whichever medium they are. It's I mean, it's great to see because you feel it's like a thousand flowers blooming or whatever. It's a cliche, but it's good to see that people can do this without huge. You, need, you don't need huge sums of money. You don't need huge corporate backing. It'll be fascinating to see what comes next. Okay, we'll have more after this. This edition of the Media Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Sure, they support the big shows like Serial, but also the little ones too. And whether your business is big or small, Squarespace is the web design and hosting service for you. Squarespace uses drag and drop tools within your own browser that make it easy to add video, audio and pictures to your design. Plus, with the new Squarespace 7, you have access to Getty Images high-quality photography and the ability to preview your website on different devices from the comfort of your own browser window. Just head to squarespace.com and you can get a free trial to see how it works. And if you really like it, you can get 10% off a monthly or annual plan by using the code MEDIAPOD at the checkout. Begin building your website with Squarespace today. And don't forget you'll receive 10% off when you use the offer code MEDIAPOD. Now, Channel 4 and ITN may be facing a severe response from the Attorney General after they released a video announcing a guilty verdict online whilst the jury were still deliberating the case. The blunder, which almost brought down the entire trial, was twice as bad, really, when you consider that the whole trial was only happening thanks to a Channel 4 dispatches team that had tipped off police to vital evidence that led to the trial in the first place. 
Whilst the case did actually result in a conviction in the end, the judge in the case called ITN and Channel 4's mistake beyond unfortunate. Uh, In the video, police had given interviews anticipating a guilty verdict, and the judge, Philip Parker QC, said if it reveals there is a practice of pre-recording triumphalist police interviews boasting about success before a verdict, it is a practice that, to my mind, should stop. Pragmatically, you can see why those sort of things happen, can't you, James? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, to be honest, I think it probably happens all the time. I mean, it's just a a process issue, isn't it? You you haven't got the time to find the copper after the verdict's announced, whichever way it goes, to do a soundbite. So you just do it before. And I think it's happened for a long time and, and continues to do so. I just think the judge was extremely shocked to discover this took place. But it's just an awful mistake, isn't it? I mean, it really, you feel so sorry for Channel 4 and ITM because, as you mentioned, this is overshadowed what was a fantastic piece of journalism mm. a brilliant program which has resulted in uh, a very evil man being sent to prison well as the judge said beyond unfortunate maggie channel four will probably face charges of contempt of court simply because someone as james says kind of flicked a switch too early it's far too easy to do in a digital world isn't it we see these kinds of stories quite regularly well we do and if the jury had, or any members of the jury had seen. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Seen it, then 
the implications that eight weeks of a trial, an expensive trial, would have counted for nothing and that somebody would have, uh, it would have all been set aside is just pretty horrific too. This is the big danger now uh, with the instant access, the online world. world. There needs to be a great deal of caution and I, su I suspect that there will be a whole new set of protocols established within ITN uh, and indeed within Channel 4 to ensure that this doesn't happen again. And the problem is, though, James, it, it, those kinds of processes might affect the quality of the journalism if it stops reporters talking to police or makes police feel yeah. they can't talk to reporters. And we've seen that kind of story as well. I think about the Sun journalists accused of paying public officials. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the Leveson report virtually ended the practice of journalists talking to police at all. I mean, and I, I'm not sure that was particularly healthy development. Um, and we've also seen some years ago after the Hutton report, the BBC journalism, I don't think was well served by some of the uh, restrictive regulations that came in in the wake of, of, of Hutton. There's been far more serious examples of malpractice really in journalism, which are things like, you know, I think the Telegraph filed a report about the execution of Saddam Hussein, an eyewitness report before it even been executed, for example. That is just, I think that's far more serious than pre-recording a quote which i think is a common practice I've, i think i find it hard to imagine that stopping i don't know if maggie well i've only ever prepared sort of backgrounders for prints mm -hmm. we all know that you can write alternative intros and alternative ends and you can get the quotes beforehand but who wants to face this double jeopardy really of mm. uh, preparing material that might in apparently reliable news organizations get published too soon i mean that's what really happened and Maggie, we're talking about how it was fortunate that none of the jurors saw this. But I mean, you could argue not many people are watching Channel 4 News at all, whether on their website or on TV. Uh, and that well, is... A... Uh, well, that's not true. I mean, uh, the Channel 4's uh, news is watched by 610,000 people on average. Now, that is way below the one million mark that it aspired to 10, 20 years ago. It's still a good number. In fact, when there was a big story like the most appalling slaughter in Peshawar, uh, it, it rose to 800,000. And with the plus one, uh, its audiences are, to some extent, consolidating. But no, news programmes are, are, and current affairs are, by and large, outside of the main BBC bulletins, having a bit of a hard time. But what doesn't change is the impact of uh, news on screen. So if uh, you might say people don't, don't either access uh, Channel 4 News or its website, Website. But the fact is that other people do and, and things get spotted. So I think they had a close shave, actually, in this story. Well, let's just touch a bit briefly, actually, on Channel 4 and their share at the moment. Because, Maggie, I know you were on Radio 4 this week talking to Steve, someone or other, about the Ofcom report <laughs> yes. uh, into Channel 4. Yes. Ofcom sounding quite concerned about the decline in share and reach of the main channel. Yes, they did, because it's fallen from uh, 6.2 to 4.9% um, over a four or five year period. And once you get below 5%, then you're in a way turning into a more marginal channel than than the 7% that everybody thought that David Abraham, the chief executive, when he came in, was really aiming to hold. But what the figures also show is that if you add in the plus one and the 4-7 catch-up channel, it starts coming back up almost to the 6% level. And in a way, Channel 4 has been in the forefront of offering digital channels and 
the catch-ups, but really ahead of the pack, the plus ones, which ITV1 copied and has copied throughout its its portfolio. And the BBC wants to copy too with BBC1. So to be fair, there is less of a need to have everything seen on the night, live, on one channel, when there are other ways of catching up. But Channel 4 has been badly hit by uh, daytime. It, it always used to traditionally ramp up its overall share by a lot of popular stuff in the afternoons, the Paul O'Grady show, for example, if you remember that. And that's all been rather stripped away, and they're trying to, to rebuild it at the moment. So the BBC, meanwhile, has rather cunningly moved off uh, children's programming and is having a real romp in daytime. I just thought of a great idea to save Channel 4. They need to make a mini-series, don't they, with King Yong and miniseries. <laughs> that, that's what they need to do. They'll get global publicity. They'll have terrorist threats. They'll be, it'll be controversial and edgy, and everything will be everything will be fine. And they'll be talked about on the media podcast, which is what anyone wants, I think, for Indeed. the ultimate light to be shone upon their projects. Uh, let's talk about Ofcom now specifically, because they've got a new chief executive, haven't they? Sharon White, uh, currently second permanent secretary to the Treasury. Uh, she takes on the new role, very well paid role at Ofcom, in March. Maggie, what do we know about her? Well, we know that she went to Cambridge. It's William College. She's married to Robert Choate, who runs the Office of Budgetary Responsibility. She appears to be a well-balanced, popular figure. I was interested to read in the Financial Times that as she enforced the budget cuts on departments, which was her public spending uh, role, uh, she she was like a nurse cajoling people to take the medicine. Uh, Firm, but, you know, fair. And uh, she's also a mother, I think, of two relatively young children who has, uh, I think, uh, certainly insisted on doing some work from home. So she she sounds thoroughly modern. She's obviously well known to Sajid Javid, who's the culture secretary and is making some interesting appointments. And of course, we have for the second time in in a row um, a woman chairing Ofcom uh, and now we have a chief executive who will also be not just also a woman but um, of Jamaican uh, parentage so I I think it looks as if the Ofcom of we we have now which is uh, meritocratic based on evidence and fairly tough but advising and remember it's going to have a really important role in setting out data, really, for for the new charter of the BBC, for for setting the context of broadcasting, public service broadcasting, uh, it looks to me as if we're going to have a sort of fairly grown-up person there without an axe to grind. Well, also on the tombola of media jobs this week, Alan Rusbridger, I mean, this is a big one, isn't it, announced this week the editor-in-chief at The Guardian is going to be leaving in the summer. He's been in charge of the paper for 20 years, same amount of time as his predecessor, Peter Preston. Uh, it's a bizarre process to appoint a new editor, isn't it, James? What's oh, the God. process and who are the favourites? I don't even remember, to be honest. I've got to be honest. I just, I wish I could. I know that staff are consulted, but Maggie might know more about that than me. But um, yeah, it will take a while. I'm just hoping, we just talked about um, Sharon White's ethnicity and, and the fact that she's a woman. It would be great to see a, the first female editor of The Guardian emerge sometime in the new year when, um, you know, much like a new pope is chosen when the... <laughs> smoke starts coming out over the Vatican when the, the signals can start emerging from King's Cross because 
we've had the Guardians got a brilliant tradition of Rosbridger before that uh, Preston as you said I think was it was it Alistair Hetherington before that have I got that yes, right yeah. um, so so and all, also did a, a, a great I think, well, I think around 20 years so you know whoever whoever gets this job will be doing for a very long time and it would be great if it was a woman it really was long overdue um, I don't know if Maggie has some more insight into how the, the process works or a prediction well, Maggie go on give us a name well, I mean, well, well, all I was going to say that the last time round, I do remember because I was reporting on it, and I had been on the Guardian. I'm a contemporary of uh, of Alan Rusbridger, and my recollection there was really only one candidate. It, it was Alan, and you felt that um, you know his time had come, and 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 that was it. Now it it isn't quite so clear. And the other funny thing about this is that Alan Rusbridger becomes chairman of the Scott Trust. So in a way, he is also the king or the queen maker, which is is unusual. The the two women candidates that are if 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 it's to be an internal candidate, and history suggests that it it will be, but it, who knows? We're in in changing times. Is Kath Viner, who's one of the deputy editors, who is currently in America running the Guardian's American operations. And the other, of, of course, is, is Janine Gibson, known to us as the former media editor of The Guardian, who, of course, went across and relaunched The Guardian in America, has come back and is, is basically running all of the the online operations. So she's she's a very strong candidate. She's one of the key figures nursing the, the, the Snowden story and revelations onto you know the worldwide consciousness really of everybody so uh, she she's probably uh, the one to beat. I mean, the other candidates. Are, in fact, I've just been in his company, Ian Katz, who was seen internally yes. as, as probably the coming man, but mm. has, is now obviously editing Newsnight and um, appears to be uh, enjoying that job. And then you have uh, some of the opinion makers uh, below that, both men. So I, I don't know who's going to get it. It's, it. it is a slightly more open field, and um, Alan Rusbridge is notoriously hard to read. <laughs> if if Ian Katz does come back, then I would insist that within his first month of, of taking up the helm, he does get everyone to do the thriller dance in King's Cross. <laughs> uh, finally, on this lazy Susan of job vacancies in the media, it was announced that Roger Wright was leaving Radio 3 and the Arts Council Chief Alan Davy very quickly became the favourite to replace him. But who would Ed Vasey get to replace Alan Davy? Why, it's Classic FM's Darren Henley. Maggie, why has Vasey chosen Henley? Well, I mean, this is very interesting. I, I, I actually interviewed um, Darren Henley when he was made uh, the managing director of uh, Classic FM. And we never published the interview because, I mean, it, I, to say he's boring isn't quite fair, but he didn't see any reason particularly to do it. Now, in fact, he has clearly run a very successful commercial operation and developed it. And he's very close, I think, to Ed Vasey, who is the number two in, in the culture, it was culture minister, and has been carrying out very useful initiatives on, on ed musical education and cultural education reports for the Department of Media, Cultural Media and Sport. And also he's been working with Boris Johnson too. He's oddly remained sort of outside of the media circus while clearly making big uh, steps in, in political circles. And the final thing I would say is that you have to remember that the chairman of the Arts Council, so Peter Bazalgette, is, to put it mildly, um, someone who could have had a career in front of the camera. He's a high-profile 
high-performing uh, person who uh, certainly likes uh, making speeches, very good at them, very funny, very witty, a good frontman. So maybe you do need uh, somebody who is quieter and and hardworking and diligent and canny and commercial. Remember, you know, all of this is, is, is about finding private sector money to complement public money, matching funds, uh, to, to do the other job, really, in, in the office. Finally, you'll be pleased to know there is just time for the media quiz. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, no. Even, even over Skype, the excitement is tangible. Uh, this <laughs> week, it is entitled Endangerment. Uh, I'll read you the answer. You tell me what the question is and how it links to this week's news. Got that? It's kind of, kind of Jeopardy-ish, right? Uh, mm. Where's the endangerment, I hear you ask? Well, this is... For the last ever cream egg. Right. That that's exciting. Cause... The last ever cream egg. This what is... do you mean? The last ever cream egg to roll off the production line. We uh, had <laughs> that, much as it was the final mini. You know, this is this is great. Yeah, fantastic. We we had a job lot of cream eggs, and this is the last time we thought we'd end the year with giving away our last ever cream egg. Who knows what turn the media quiz will take next year? So, best of three, buzz in when you have the question. Answer number one. High school student Mohammed Islam. Oh yes, I know this one. Gotta say your name. Uh, sorry, James. James. Who? Let me get. Let me get. <laughs> difficult concept. Um, who fooled the New York magazine into thinking he was a genius young stock market trader? That is exactly right. Well Thank done, you. James. Very good. Okay. Answer number two. Endemol Shine Group. Okay, I'll go for this one as well, Maggie, since there's a resounding silence from Maggie. Oh, well, they all merged, and it was all... Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Name. Maggie, you've got to... What's your name? Maggie Brown. The, 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 the merger was, was agreed, and it's all happened. That's not the question. What's the no, question? No, that's not the question. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, what uh, transatlantic deal was agreed this week? No, I'm afraid the question I was looking for, Maggie, is what is the new name of the newly merged Shine, Endemol and Core companies? Oh, God. Uh, so it doesn't matter all to play for. Third question. Uh, third answer. Geez, I really can't get my head around this. Right, the third answer is Indiana Jones, Doctor Who, Lara Croft and Top Gear. Oh, they're all good. Oh, uh, what, what, buzz in with your name. Which which, which programs buzz are all in going with to your be name. put into uh, Maggie Brown? Which programs are all going to be part of some... Kent-based theme park. Yes. Um, which should be going to invest in. Yes, you, the, the story you're referring to is the resort that Paramount are building and they've signed up BBC Worldwide. Uh, sparkling rumours of the kinds of rides we might see in the future. I quite like the idea of the last of the summer wine ride where you get chucked down a hill in a bath. <laughs> but, you know, they, they, they thought they would do this about 15 years ago and nothing came of it. There was going to be an EastEnders theme park, I recall. I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. What happens in an EastEnders theme park? Do you just shout at each other? <laughs> it's a place of unbridled misery. <laughs> Why did they put it in TV Centre? That would have been the obvious thing to do, wouldn't it? Yeah. You're going to have a BBC yeah. theme park. Well, yeah. because the BBC probably uh, would rather that it takes place a long way away from where they're making programmes, I suspect. Yeah. Well, you'll be very pleased to know that your cream egg has already been split in half by producer Matt and it's being shipped out to you first class. It should arrive in the first week of February. Christmas post. Uh, that's it for today. My thanks to Maggie Brown and James Robinson. We'll be back on the 1st of January with our predictions special. You can get it as soon as it's ready by subscribing at themediapodcast.com. 
This week's episode is dedicated to Paul Griffiths, a post-production provision practitioner, that's a lot of P's, living in Guildford. Uh, and also to Nick Long of SalonProSales.com, suppliers of storage drives for video and audio creatives. Well, thank you to you both. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer was Matt Hill. Until next time, Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas, everyone.